Now, I know this is a Baptist church, but I'm going to start with something that I normally wouldn't. But as the start of the, when we were kind of at the start of the service, I kind of felt the Spirit talking to me. And like, don't freak out that I'm saying that. It's okay. We'll be okay. But there's like, there's part of, so Glen Osmond is a fantastic church because it's so casual. And I think a lot of times we make jokes about the casual and family nature of this church. But I wanted, I guess it's like a bit of an encouragement that it's actually, it's quite a beautiful thing. It's not super organized, but it's very, like it's hyper relational. I know that sounds bad. I swear I mean it really well, but honestly, it's very relational and it's, it's refreshing and it's something that uh, I think actually is very valued and it actually kind of leads into my sermon really well. So that's nice. Um, and I guess where, where I'm taking it today um, is about how as people, we we often miss the mark quite a bit. I think it's in human nature. And, and so, you know, our society, by and large, is based on work. And so um, whether we're, you know, we're either working or we're looking for work or we're working to figure out how to stop working, our uh, school education, kind of our formative years, by and large, are spent equipping us with the skills that we need to get a good job and do good work. And Um, Once we get these necessary skills throughout our schooling, we uh, move into the next phase, which is specialisation. So that might be uni or apprenticeship or TAFE or straight into a career or whatever it is. And then once we've specialised, we begin to work. And that might be in the field that we've um, decided or it might be a a temporary job um, until we can get the job that we want or um, sometimes we jump around until we find something that fits us. We we look for jobs that are available, what will suit my lifestyle, um, is it enough money, will it provide the things I need or that my family needs and just kind of keep us going. And then once we're in that job, we punch the clock and we set down the path of working to provide, again, for our family or ourselves, or maybe to fill a need in society or to fulfill a sense of personal achievement, there's lots of reasons, um, or for some it's simply just to fill the hours until we can do the thing that we like doing. For most of us, our lives centre around work and what we do. Um, As one sage poet put it, um, working nine to five, what a way to make a living. That's Dolly Parton, for those that don't know that. No, everyone here will know that's okay. (laughs) Look, if I was a preacher that did props, I'd wear the hair for sure. Um, (laughs) And so, now, I'm not here to say that we shouldn't work. So sorry for those that were getting excited that that's the path I was going down. It wasn't. I think work is good, personally. Um, Many of us are in roles that bring us a lot of satisfaction. Um, And I do want to add in as well, I'm not just talking about sort of paid work, it's also unpaid work. So you're talking of things like um, parenting or housework, all this stuff. I think we are designed to work. I think that's a good thing. Um, Currently, the role I'm in, um, which is at Torrens Valley Christian School, can be really, you know, stressful and burdensome at times, but it actually brings me a lot of joy and energy to be in that role. And I think God is for work as well. I think all too often we think of the Garden even Eden as um, this like serene environment um, for us to just kind of like bask in and sit around and sunbathe and kind of just cruise around and hang out with these cute animals. Um, or at least it's a bit like this Simpson episode, which I think for like most millennials, that's kind of what's formed our vision of, of what life is, as sad as that is. That's how I viewed the Garden of Eden. Um, but that actually isn't the vision that God has. God didn't say, um, you know, hey, chill out and be fruitful and multiply. Uh, Sorry, he didn't say, you know, chill out and just, you know, do whatever, it's fine. He actually said, uh, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And from your announcer, it sounds like people have been doing the work. Um, In fact, the word Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew word for subdue is the word kavash. Can everyone say kavash? 
It's a good word. What that literally means is to place your foot on the neck of your conquered enemy, signifying a submission. So that kind of sounds like work to me. <laughs> um, and God gave us this cultural mandate to work. And, and so I think work, we can see biblically, is a good thing. So please don't hear me saying that we shouldn't, we shouldn't work. But we need to be careful. We don't allow our work to be how we define ourselves. Wow, that was a big noise. Or another way to say, of, of saying that is that we don't let our work um, how, be how we derive our value. We live in a culture that places a huge emphasis on our value as humans based on the work that we do. According to the ADP Research Institute, which is in America, one in ten employees say that they've been putting in 20 hours of free work per week. Our feeds are filled with slogans like uh, rise and grind or, um, you know, hustle harder and all these kind of things. And, you know, leaders in the field, you see that they basically don't have a life. They just devote it all to work. And since the pandemic's hit, this has only gotten worse. Um, The already blurred line between um, personal and work has pretty much become non-existent where you've now got communication channels that are 24-7 and you're expected to reply to that message or that slack or whatever it is. And so unsurprisingly, we find ourselves constantly looking at our work for our value, to solve a problem, to fix ourselves, or to ensure that society knows that we belong here because we're putting in the work. And the funny thing is this idea of drawing value from what we do and using our own abilities to take control or to further ourselves, it's actually a repeated behavior. And today we're going to look at two biblical stories, which I think get to the essence of this behavior Um, in humanity. And so first I'd like to um, invite Ian up who's going to read the first reading for us. So you can have this microphone. The first reading comes from Exodus 32 verses 1 to 6. Moses went up the mountain to get the word from God, the uh, Ten Commandments, but he took a while. When the people saw that Moses was so long In coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and they said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing. Obviously the boys were wearing earrings too. And bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Thank you very much. There's a whole other sermon I could do on like gender stereotypes and we could use... Anyway, that's right. That's next week. No, no, that's Laurie. I'll give him a message and he can add that in. So um, in kind of alluded to what was, how we've got to that point in the story, but I'll do a little bit of context just to help us out. So 
Um, Israel's just been released from slavery um, to Egypt by God um, via sort of the saga of the plagues and the parting of the seas and these really dramatic big events. And it's pretty clear that God has been involved here. When you have a giant body of water parting and, you know, fire raining down in Egypt, it's pretty clear that God has had a hand in this. And so after this, they journeyed towards Mount Sinai, which at times they weren't all too happy about, but they were led by God's tangible presence in the form of a pillar of cloud and fire. And so it kind of God's presence was there. And, and then they were given these laws by which they were to worship God and entering into a covenantal relationship with God. And, and these laws are a pretty comprehensive view of how people are to worship. They're a bit like guidelines. So now we find ourselves at Mount Sinai and Moses, um, as Ian said, has gone up to hang with God for a bit um, and he's kind of slowly making his way down. I mean, it's a mountain and he's pretty old, so it makes sense that he's going to take a little bit of time to do that. But the people grow impatient and they decide that they're going to do the work here. Now, it's really important to note that the calf that Aaron creates here isn't necessarily building another God um, because in verse 5, it actually refers to Yahweh. It says the Lord, Yahweh. And so I think... You know, a lot of people think that they're, they're worshipping this, they're creating this new God, but there's, and there's a few other theories around this, but the one that stuck out for me and I think was really pertinent to the way we're thinking is that they were essentially trying to build their own version of a representation of God. Now, don't get me wrong, that's still idol worship, but I think it says something about where their heads were at, right? Like, they've seen multiple examples of God, um, his power in Egypt, they've got a tangible presence with him in the pillar of... Um, uh, smoke and uh, fire and cloud and I feel like they're pretty cool with like God being the guy like they get it they understand um, and even the calf at that time and in their context was actually a vision of divine strength and energy and fertility and even leadership and so it feels like this is kind of their tribute to God to Yahweh but instead of being patient and waiting on God they decide that they're going to do the work and bring about God on their time see this is where the Israelites miss the mark they didn't get what God was doing in that moment and so took things into their own hand. And if it wasn't bad enough, then they actually kind of take it a step further. They begin to worship God in their own way and how they decide they should do it. They're bypassing these guidelines that have been handed down to them from God and instead, allow, um, instead of allowing the priests to kind of carry out the sacrificial system, they're just doing it themselves. They think it's better. And see, it kind of feels like their hearts are in the right place, but they're, they're going ahead of God and trying to work their way there. And I wonder for us, like, where can you see that in your life? Like, where have you decided that you know best how to worship God? Or perhaps you've decided to worship created things rather than creator God himself. Or even control uh, what God looks like in your situation or what you'll allow him to do or how you'll expect him to move upon your prayer. Where have, you been, uh, where have you begun to go ahead of God's timing and put in the work to make sure what needs to get done needs to get done, you know? We do it all. See, it's a challenge in our society because what we do is who we are. It's our, it's our value. Our doing becomes our value. And, and often um, this is done with best intentions, um, like I know for me, I, I read, you know, I read quite a bit uh, about God, about the Bible. I um, try to be, you know, study hard to make sure I understand things. I, I practice spiritual disciplines as often as I can. And none of those are bad things. But like for me, I wonder if I'm actually content just sitting and not doing, not trying to work my way to knowledge of God or not trying to work my way into relationship with God. Am I happy actually just sitting and let 
God speak to me? And so when God calls us to be patient, to you know, wait for Moses to come down the mountain, metaphorically, and society calls us to push forward and make our own vision of that, um, create our vision of what God should be, misaligning what God's call is for us and stepping outside of his will, repeating the mistakes of the Israelites and fashioning our own kind of calf uh, in the shape of efficiency and human effort. It's a very common story. Uh, cool. Now our second story. Stephanie, you're going to read that one for us? Cool. Thanks. This is Matthew 17. <clears throat> After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. Great. Thanks, Seth. Cool. So we've got three guys, one like shiny person and two ghosts on the top of a mountain. It's a really good setting for a story. And, and there's so much to this story that we could pull out, but um, we don't have time, and I won't keep you for like 45 minutes. But there's one element I really do want to focus on, and that's Peter in this story. See, Peter is an amazing case study, and I, and I highly recommend um, when you're going back through the Gospels, read it with a vision to really take note of what Peter's doing. He does a lot, and it's not all good, it's not all bad. Um, he just is a very um, good example of what we are as humanity. So here we have the entrusted circle of Jesus, which includes Peter, and they're being taken up a mountain, um, which I think indicates that this was meant to be a private thing. It was obviously something pretty important that Jesus was wanting them to witness because you're going up a mountain. Um, And so they arrive, and Jesus is transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. I mean, oh, can we go back for a second? That's okay. Look, like, you know, it's obviously art, but like, magnificent you know imagine being up on that hill and jesus just kind of transforms like that like you can only imagine what um the site would have been like i mean this is jesus who they know to be the messiah or at least kind of slowly getting the idea that he's the messiah it takes them a little while transforms before their eyes um into something like brilliantly bright and and wonderful um i can only imagine the awe um and and um wonder that the three disciples would have felt at that moment But here's where Peter gets it wrong, just slightly. Here Peter missed the mark of responding to Jesus and being with him, again taking things into his own hands. Instead of bowing and worshipping Jesus, he decides that now is a good time to start organising housing arrangements. I mean, he has the Son of God in front of him, sparkling, and he decides to start talking about tents. Now, I'm quite pragmatic as a person, and I love the practical, but even I can see that's ridiculous. If you had God in front of you and you're like, oh, I wonder what kind of tent I'm going to use. Is it a four or three man? I don't know. We'll figure it out. Like, it's just, you know. And God says, this is my son. Oh, sorry, I'm going to jump back a little bit. Sorry. So Peter's talking. He's trying to put tents up and do all this sort of stuff, and then this cloud interrupts him and appears around him. And we know from our time in the Old Testament that the cloud is a representation of God's presence. 
And so God says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. There's an exclamation mark on the end of it. He said, but listen to him. This is my son. See, Peter is so busy running around and organizing and ensuring that his value as a person is kept intact and as a disciple by his working that he actually forgets to just sit, listen, and be in the presence of God. And what about us, you know? When do we miss the mark and we take things into our own hands, thinking that we know better, but instead we miss what God is doing at that moment? How often are we focused on, especially like especially in church and ministry, on ensuring that things go right, or that we are organized enough, or uh, whatever it is that we think as people that we can do to manifest God and the Holy Spirit, we actually forget to just kind of sit and be in awe. In awe of a God who is in our midst constantly, as you said, Ian, when two or three are gathered, you know, it's, he's here. God is here in our midst. Um, and he is so faithful to us and so, so good. This, this isn't a God we have to set up for. It isn't a God who requires uh, us to ensure that everything is perfect and on time before he comes. It's a God that's there for us. In amongst all our mess and our suffering, it's a God who put his only son in our shoes and suffered and understood our lives and died for us that we might have new life. See, we aren't called to bring God about. We're actually, we aren't meant to to create these golden calves um, in our lives that are representations of God because God is already here. God is already with us. He's in our midst. And if we could only manage to get out of our own way, we'll be able to experience him and, and know him. And I don't just mean knowledge of him. I actually mean know him, experience him, and have a knowledge of him. And Paul speaks about human effort quite a bit through the New Testament, Um, but I think he really hits it on the barrel with this one. It's Romans 9, verse 16, Um, and it says, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says, Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I may display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so effort isn't the point. It's actually his power that is the focus. See, we strive and work so hard, but the reality is God's already done it. He's already hit out the park for us. We're simply enjoying his mercy and joining in with what God is already doing. Our value, our identity isn't in our work or in our effort. It's in him who created us. And that's the ballgame, folks. But partnering with God with what he's already doing, if we would only just wait on him and then respond and participate and be led by where God is going. Leaning into what he is doing and living out his call for our lives. N.T. Wright has this incredible quote, and I think it sums it up really well. The only thing left to do is take a long, deep breath and shake our heads in wonderment and give praise to God whose thoughts, plans, and accomplishments are so much deeper and greater than anything we could have imagined for ourselves. Everything comes from him. Everything we have comes from him. Everything that exists, the whole creation is his handiwork and is sustained in existence by his power and love. Everything we do traces itself back into his presence as a sovereign one before whom all work and activity is, at best, loving service. 
And so what's the practical for us that comes out of this? And I understand the irony of I'm saying what's the practical, but I think there is part of what we need to do. As I said earlier, it's not that we're called not to work, but we need to be on God's time. So how can we make sure that we aren't striving on our own effort? It's actually fairly simple, but yet it's so radically different to what society tells you. I'm going to read a psalm, and I think um, this kind of just... It was just a psalm that, um, and we're going to sing a song later, which kind of references it, and I think it, it perfectly emulates what I'm trying to talk about. And if the Bible does it, then it's better than me saying it. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is with her, within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Be still and know that I am God. We are called to be still and know that God is working. And this practice of abiding, of stillness, has a long, long history within the church. It's nothing new. And it's how we sustain ourselves and we hear God speak into our lives. And so the moments of quiet where we still our bodies and our minds, and we focus on Him, allowing the re- our rest to be our production and letting God do the work. Honestly, this is, this is radical in our society Stillness isn't productive. It doesn't get the work done. It doesn't build the kingdom or um, take ground for God, as a lot of people say. But it's, that's where we so often get it wrong, is that it isn't actually about us. It's about Him. His strength, His power, His presence. And as I finish up, I just want to challenge you a little bit. So this, this week, this month, or even beyond, ideally, take times during your day to be still and stop working and planning, and be in that moment with God. Press back against the cultural wave, constant cultural wave of work, and actually just sit and delight in the Lord. And that's going to look different for each of you, and that's okay. God created us unique, and we need to lean into that uniqueness. If it's nature we love, then sit in nature and be still. If it's art we love, sit around art and be still. If it's music, then do that. But be still. We need to rebel against what society tells us is the ultimate prize and instead reorientate ourselves to stillness in front of the Lord and listen to him. Let's pray. Dear God, we, we note that um, society is not where you, you plan it to be. It's not on your time. It's not in your vision. And so often we fall back into that trap of, learning from the world and learning the rhythms of the world, but we know that in your scriptures you tell us to be still and know that you are God. Lord, I pray that we can have the strength to stop, to actually just sit in your presence, in your midst, and I pray that you would come into that and graciously um, 
put your spirit into us and that we just can sit and bask in your goodness and, and know that you are a faithful God as you have been um, throughout generations and generations. I pray that everyone here would, would go away with a sense of stillness and be able to take that into the Monday morning when the phone calls start and the emails click over or the children scream or whatever it is, Lord, that in some of those moments you would be able to say, be still and know I am God. We pray this in your name. Amen.